According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through scriptures. We are in Jeremiah once again. This morning we arrive at Jeremiah chapter 22. Jeremiah chapter 22. Continuing... Uh, messages of judgment, continuing a series of rebukes against the kings of Judah, the final four kings of Judah, and uh, their wickedness. And so uh, we got a good start on it last week in uh, the development of chapter 21, only 14 verses last week. we got more to deal with this week, continuing on. It gets very political, so uh, we'll see how political I get with it in uh, the process of this. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside distractions to humble us under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the blessings we have to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for the the privilege that it is for us to come on this day, on the Lord's day, to receive instruction, to present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I pray this morning we would rightly divide, that we would cut straight, that we would see the truth for what it is. And uh, as we cut straight, Father, that which falls on the left and that which falls on the right, that we would be discerning in our own application, Father. Uh, Open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, chapter 22 opens with a prose sermon. In fact, it's very much a repeat and an expansion of what we saw last week in chapter 21 and verse 12. If you glance back to verse 12, you'll notice, O house of David, thus says the Lord, administer justice every morning and deliver the person who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor, that my wrath may not go forth like fire and burn with none to extinguish it because of the evil of their deeds. And that poem, that poetry that we have in chapter 21 is now expanded with a prose sermon here in chapter 22. And I expect a lot of these sermons were delivered repeatedly. They were delivered day after day, week after week, month after month through the reigns of, of these very wicked kings as, uh, as we understand them. So verses 1 through 9 form... Um, what we're looking at here in uh, in these verses. You might recall from last week, I can bring this up again and then we'll go back. But after King Josiah, every king after Josiah was wicked. And so from Jehoahaz to Jehoiakim to uh, Jehoiakim to Zedekiah, every last one of these was a wicked king. They didn't have a good one again after good King Josiah. And we've got to keep that in our thinking. It goes from worse to worse to worse to worse. And we're going to see what happens as the Davidic throne gets vacated. We're going to see the promises that God makes because God has made eternal covenant promises to David. David will not lack a son to sit on his throne. And yet this This chapter is going to communicate a curse. This chapter is going to communicate information that we might view as being contradictory. We might view as being a replacement to something that had been said earlier. And we're going to learn some things about Scripture that God never um, uh, revokes something previously uh, in a way that uh, I think too many of our religions do. 
And uh, I'm going to illustrate that when we talk about what the Quran does, for example, as it abrogates the things that came before, or what the Book of Mormon claims to do, as it abrogates what came before. And all these Johnny-come-lately messages that claim to be the latest and greatest from God, and just go ahead and ignore everything that came before. All right, That's Satan's main method. And he does it again and again and again and again with every false prophet to come along. But God himself never does that. If he gives a subsequent message that appears to be different from a previous message, well, then we've got some work to do. We have to reconcile Scripture with Scripture. We have to compare what came after with what came before and why are there particular differences and in what way do we harmonize them. Okay? And so it's a very useful exercise and one we're going to get to here this morning, I think, in the unfolding of this. And it should be clear uh, when we talk about the curse of Jeconiah and how the curse of Jeconiah does not counteract the unconditional covenant to David. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not contradictory, although they might appear to be contradictory to us until we see the beauty of how God unfolds these things. So stay tuned. Uh, this should uh, be exciting here bef- between now and the top of the hour as this all comes together. But as we take a look at it now, thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on David's throne, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. And you'll note the king is not named and it could be any of those last four kings, likely all of those last four kings heard this message coming through loud and clear. Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And so we have the the legitimate role of government and what it is that God has designed for us to administer justice one to another. How do we operate under the laws of divine establishment with legitimate the legitimate role of government providing structure and order to a society? Verse 4 then, For if you men will indeed perform this thing, then kings will enter the gates of this house, sitting in David's place on his throne, riding in chariots and on horses, even the king himself and his servants and his people. Amazing prophecy here where we have plural kings and then we have the king. All right, and it's a, it's a tantalizing little tease for what the millennium is going to be like when not only do we have, of course, the King, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, seated on His throne in great glory, but we also have David and Solomon and Jehoahaz, and, or not Jehoahaz, all the believing kings, the righteous kings that are resurrected and glorified for the millennial kingdom. We're going to have the, an abundance of kings in the millennial kingdom, and uh, that's going to be a fun thing to study as well. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become a desolation. And so we're left with two choices, you know, choose you this day whom you will serve. What direction do you want to go? There's the direction for blessing if you imitate David. And then there's the pattern of of discipline. If you imitate those northern kings, the kings of the northern kingdom, you will come under God's judgment. And ultimately, that's what happens. The southern kingdom gets swept away to a Babylonian captivity, just as the northern kingdom had been swept away to an Assyrian captivity. And sadly, that's the, uh, the direction that, uh, that they go. We do have here, though, principles of righteous government. And they are as valid today as they've ever been. 
All right, and these are important principles we want to keep in mind, even though, of course, we're not a theocracy and we don't, uh, we don't expect that we are a theocracy. But so far as our laws are patterned after the laws that are given in the Old Testament, when God did establish a theocracy on this earth, then our nation will be blessed. And when our founding fathers established our constitution and the laws of our nation based upon biblical principles, they did so with the full awareness that a nation following these principles will be pleasing to the God of justice, to the God of truth. All right? And so these become important. I'm not going to take a ton of time on this. It's Communion Sunday, and we're always a bit short uh, for time on Communion Sunday, but go back to Deuteronomy and you'll see this. Go uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and you're going to see the expectations for government, the expectations for righteousness in government. And we want to have fairness because the God of justice will hold us to that. That God designed it on that basis. And whenever a human government perverts that, the God of justice applies his wrath see because it is a minister of of good it's supposed to be designed as a minister of good and when it violates those things more often than not the god of truth is going to come along and and uh, take care of things himself and he removes kings and he installs kings and he accomplishes his good pleasure within human politics and that may be hard to imagine but he does and sometimes as it says in the book of daniel he appoints the basest of men you get the most godless, wicked, evil uh, son of a, of, in, in this Bible language, not my language, okay, son of a Belial ends up in office because God put him there. And God put him there to discipline a nation. And we want to be clear on this, that, that um, the, uh, the election this fall is, is not in our hands, it's in God's hands, and we need to be prayerful related to what he's going to do in our land for blessing or for cursing. And we better be prepared to deal with it accordingly. Anyway, as you work through Deuteronomy 10, you're going to see that, verses 12 through 22. I would also remind you, though, in Deuteronomy 17, here's a practice I like to see get brought back into, uh, into use. Um, verses 18 through 20 is a good reminder for your politicians to remember uh, who put them in office and what it is that they are expected to do. Uh, it shall come about, this is uh, Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, when uh, he sits on the throne of his kingdom, this is, so when a king takes office, in other words, in the nation of Israel, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So every king, when he assumes the throne, is supposed to sit down and write out his own copy of the Torah, his own copy of the law. And he's to do so in the, in the guidance and the observation of the priests who keep an eye on him and make sure he's not skipping those parts that he wants to skip, all right? He's going to include every passage of Scripture. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh, his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. And could you imagine if on January 20th, on Inauguration Day, before a president would be allowed to uh, put his hand on a Bible or raise his hand and then take the oath of office, that he solemnly swears to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States, what if we uh, demanded that he hand write out his own copy of the United States Constitution? And he does so under the supervision of the 
oh, I don't know, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and, and has his own handwritten text of the Constitution. So he knows what he is swearing to uphold and defend, as it were. Okay? I'd be for that. I think it'd be a great idea. And just to, to keep him humble and to realize this is what it's about. Because if it's not in the Constitution, why are you doing it? Government should not be doing it. All right, that's, I told you I'm going to get political this morning because <laughs> we're, we're in this. But the idea of doing righteousness and doing justice and to, to provide, to deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. God in his, in his genius plan devised volition and marriage and family and government for the orderly function of humanity. And so I don't have to take justice into my own hands. I don't have to wage a blood feud. I don't have to grab my clan and my tribe and have a Hatfield versus McCoy warfare because the sword has been given to the king. And we have governance in that regard. And everything takes its place. Everything is in God's design. And by the way, the state doesn't raise my children. All right? Parents raise children. Family has the, the sovereignty over family. Husbands and wives and marriage. There's, there's a scope in each of these responsibilities. Personal volition for the individual. All right? And government does not dictate conscience. Government does not dictate marriage or redefine it, as ours did last year. All right? Or family is what constitutes a family. And likewise, families and marriages don't, and individuals don't take justice into their own hands. Everything in the laws of divine establishment is designed in the book of Genesis. Right there in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you have all these things spelled out for humanity. And the idea of government here. Of course, we have more information on government because we have the law. Mosaic law showing us what it is that's expected of a nation to operate in a way that pleases God. All right. Other things we might want to institute. You know, think about, we talked about it in Proverbs last week as well. Um, capital punishment, corporal punishment. We, we learned in Proverbs that corporal punishment, in other words, don't, don't limit corporal punishment to spankings. We tend to think that corporal punishment is just parents to children. Well, guess what? The Mosaic Law gave corporal punishment to, to Caesar as well. It was a step short of capital punishment. And uh, our nation doesn't do it, but uh, Singapore still does canings, as uh, a young American found out back in 1994. And uh, there are other parts of the world that still have canings and corporal uh, punishment in that regard. It's a part of Mosaic Law. The, the American colonies had uh, canings. And uh, George Washington actually got it extended from 39 lashes to 100 lashes to uh, maintain discipline in the, in the Continental Army. And the Continental Congress approved it. Said, all right, you'll get 100 lashes, and if you need 500, we'll give you that too. And they stopped it at 100. But um, they still had all these things. I'm saying, is, as we go back to biblical standards, the closer we align to God's standards, the the uh, more pleasing our government will be in the eyes of God. And the more at variance we are with God's standards, the, uh, the more displeasing we're going to be as a government in the eyes of God. And that becomes important as we see in this chapter. When a government is not uh, operating as it's designed to do, is displeasing in the eyes of God. And so we see the consequences then that come. God's judgments upon the Jews serve to warn all Gentile nations how a holy God must be feared. You know, if he treats Israel this way, how, how do you think a Gentile nation is going to fare? 
If God does not spare the Jews, is he going to cut us some slack? Is it, do we, uh, no. If he, he, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. He holds Israel the most accountable because they have been given the law and they are his covenant nation. But a Gentile nation likewise is going to come under judgment, it's going to come under discipline in, uh, when it is defi- in defiance of the scriptures. And we want to be clear on this. Notice verses 8 and 9 here of this chapter. When he does destroy Jerusalem, when he takes them off into captivity, he says in verse 8, many nations will pass by this city and they will say to one another, why has the Lord done thus to this great city? And they will answer, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord their God and bowed down to other gods and served them. It's going to become an object lesson it's going to become a, um, a memorial to, to look at and see. Look at this. Look at what Yahweh, how, how the God of justice is to be treated. The God of holiness is to be treated. And when the God of holiness is not treated as holy, then his own people come into the consequences of that. And for 70 years they're living in captivity in Babylon and this city is a ruin. Or following the Roman destruction, similar example. Following Antichrist destruction, similar example. Every time God hands the Jews over to judgment, Gentiles better pay attention and say, "Um, we're in trouble. If he treats the covenant nation like this, how is he going to deal with us? We see that he is not one to show partiality. Moses even promised them this in Deuteronomy 29. Uh, as he gives them the laws, they're getting ready to enter into the land, uh, comes the prophecy that they're not going to be obedient and that a day will come that they will lose the very land that, that they're entering into. And so when you read through Deuteronomy 22, grab this one, Deuteronomy 22, I did not versify this slideshow, I should have versified it, that would have saved us some page flipping and Deuteronomy 29, verses 22 through 29. And Moses is preparing them to enter into the land. And they have promises, of course. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the land that that they've been promised. And a whole generation has passed now. And they're getting ready now to enter in, finally, to enter in. And yet, because of their faithlessness, judgment will come. A day of their judgment will come. So Deuteronomy 29 and verse 22. Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, they will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows on it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. And all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why is this great outburst of anger? And so here's the mosaic preview of what Jeremiah has given us today. All right, what we're studying today in Jeremiah 22 is ripped off from Moses, okay, in the centuries before and uh, fulfilled. Why, why has the Lord done this? And the men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he has made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. 
Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. Now keep in mind, we, we were, we're looking at this. This applies to the covenant nation of Israel. But the principles contained here apply to every nation on earth, including Gentile nations. Acts 17 tells us that. The sovereignty of God is in control of every nation on this earth, from their appointed times to the boundaries of their habitation, that they might seek Him. All right. When you study Acts 17, that comes across loud and clear. So therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. There's consequences to the land itself. We've seen that in earlier chapters in Jeremiah. Their sin had an environmental impact that it affected the birds, it affected the animals, it affected the trees. And if you were truly a, a tree hugger, and a, 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 an environmentally, if you were environmentally minded on a biblical scale, you would realize the real issue is human sin. And we can clean up pollution in, in, in creation through righteousness of its inhabitants. Anyway, that, uh, that came across in earlier chapters already here in, uh, in Jeremiah. 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1-9, through 9, you have Solomon dedicating the temple. And guess what the message he has? The same message Moses had. The same message Jeremiah delivers. That says, if we defy the Lord God, His judgment will remove us. And in, there they are dedicating the, the most impressive building ever built by the hands of man. They're, they're dedicating the temple of Solomon. And he's reminding them, if we abandon the Lord, then this city will come under judgment. I'll grab this real quickly on my way back to Jeremiah. But in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, it gets spelled out in this way came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon and the Lord said to him I've heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me I've consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually as for you if if you will walk before me as your father David walked in the integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Now notice, when he's giving this, when he's confirming this to Solomon, he has a huge if attached to it. That wasn't the case when he, when he confirmed it to, to David. He told David right from the beginning, I will. It's an unconditional covenant with David based on the language of I will. And there was no ifs. In Solomon's case, there's the if. In Rehoboam and every king afterwards, there's an if. All the way down to Zedekiah, all the way down to the last king on the throne until it's vacated. All right? And, and some imitated David. Some did not imitate David. This becomes important, I think, as we study these things through. Because we know what happened at the end of Solomon's life, Right? All the women he married and his idolatry and his darkness. So verse 6, If you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. He told them he would do this. And here they are pridefully in Jeremiah's day saying, oh, no, no, God would never burn his own temple. 
No, God would never destroy his own city. We're, we're going to be protected. We're going to be fine. And every false prophet was lying to them on that basis. And Jeremiah was saying, no, he's going to burn this temple. He's going to burn this city. He said he would. Verse 8, this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, why has the Lord done thus to the land and to his house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. So Moses told him, Solomon told him, here's Jeremiah telling him the same thing in Jeremiah 22, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to bring this city to an end. It's going to be an object lesson to the Gentiles. All right, so there's the first section here of this chapter. Then we get verses 10 through 12. Do not weep for the dead or mourn for him. But weep continually for the one who goes away, for he will never return or see his native land. Who's this talking about? Well, Shalom in verse 11. For thus says the Lord in regard to Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who became king in the place of Josiah, his father, who went forth from this place. He will never return there. But in the place where they led him captive, there he will die and not see this land again. All right, so here's Shalom. I've given him a nickname. I decided I'm going to become like Donald Trump. And I'm, I'm going to try to help us out to remember these different kings. All right? So I'm calling him Short Shrift Shalom. Short Shrift Shalom. He got three months on the throne and three verses in Jeremiah. And that's all he got. We don't know much about him, actually. You can read some in, in Jeremiah 22. You can learn a few things about him. Uh, in Chronicles, like who reads Chronicles? Um, but if you don't ignore the uh, the boring begat lists and the lists of the sons, you actually will learn some content pertaining to Shalom, or Jehoahaz, as he's also known. Uh, in, in the book of Kings, he's called Jehoahaz. He was a wicked king. Uh, he uh, only reigned for three months before he was thrown down. Pharaoh Necho took him off the throne and brought him down into the land of Egypt. And, and that's where he dies. And this prophecy even speaks to that. If there was a, a faction within Jerusalem that thought bringing, bringing Shalom back was going to be helpful, Shalom is kind of a, a, a vocalization of Shalom. So it almost means peace. It's a king that maybe promises peace. Interesting man. Uh, in fact, he's the fourth born son uh, of all the sons. And why was he made king first? Why was he the popular choice? Um, interestingly, after uh, Josiah dies, we read about it in Second Kings 23, verses 30 through 33. This is the one that they make king right off the bat. And uh, I, I'm curious, because the Bible doesn't tell us why or what the answers were, why they passed over Zedekiah, why they passed over uh, uh, Jehoiakim, why they passed over the older brothers and uh, took the baby of the, of the litter and, and made him king. Um, but they did. In Second Kings 23, verses 30 through 33, we have the, the story here. Um, Josiah, who, who really is the, the main king that's featured in this chapter, he was a great king. Uh, he obeyed the Lord. He, he, he served uh, 
in a lot of great ways. But he went out to battle. He went out to stop Pharaoh Necho. And it was the dumbest thing he ever did. Even, even good kings can make dumb choices. And that's what happens here. So, let's see, reading from 2 Kings 23, verse 28 says, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And one of the most famous battles of all the ancient world took place right there, 609 B.C. And uh, King Josiah went to meet him, and when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. The same Megiddo that we pay attention to because of Armageddon and, and things that are prophetic. Uh, well, why did he do that? Why did, why did the king even come out? Why didn't he stay in Jerusalem? Why, why did he get involved? Did he come out to try to stop him? Did he come out to join him? Did he, we, we, we have more questions than answers at this point. And his servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Then the people of the land, and this is you know, popular opinion for you. You win the popular vote, and uh, what do you got? Uh, the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. And yet we learn that he's the fourth son when you read the, uh, the chronicle listing there in First Chronicles 3.15. And uh, made him king in place of his father. And Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Different Jeremiah. All right, don't get confused. And, um, and a lot of these sons had different mothers because a lot of these kings had multiple wives. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamath and that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. And so this is how Eliakim takes the throne, who we know as Jehoiakim. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt, and he died there. All right, so that's kind of the, the background on that. And uh, so in the, in the uh, prophecy here in verses 10 through 12, do not weep for the dead or mourn for him. I think that's grieving over the, the tragic death of Josiah. And then the one who was taken away, weep continually for the one who goes away, for he will never return or see his native land. And this is the fate of Shalom, who's going to uh, live out his days in Egypt and uh, never return. All right, well, that's short shrift shalom. We'll let him go. Because now we got, uh, we got jackass Jehoiakim. All right, and I'm not calling him that. The Bible's calling him that. All right, and he's going to get buried like one. He's going to get dragged out like a donkey and buried. See, now I know why Donald Trump does this. It's fun. You just take a name and you assign it to somebody like Lion Ted or whatever, Crooked Hillary, and uh, you, just, you just get something memorable and it sticks. All right. And the scripture talks about this here. Now we got a longer message. It's verses 13 through 19, and it's not a happy ending. Notice verse 19. He will, he will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. And that's what he has to look forward to. 
And the history on Jehoiakim is, is horrible. He's going to reign 11 years. And he's one of the biggest thorns in the side of Jeremiah. It's kind of a toss-up. Who was a worse king? Was it Jehoiakim or was it Zedekiah? Because they both hated Jeremiah. They both burned his scrolls. They both rejected the word of God. Zedekiah at least would send messengers every so often to see what the Lord might say. Um, Jehoiakim never even did that, I don't think, for the most part. Didn't, didn't even want to know what Jeremiah had to say related to these things. So, starting in verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness, and his upper rooms without justice, who uses his neighbor's services without pay, and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms, and cut out its windows, paneling it with cedar, and painting it with bright red. And so, for, for Jeconiah, I'm sorry, for Jehoiakim, it's all about him. Everything is all geared to him, all right? How he gets enriched, how he makes his money, how he panels his house. In fact, those that are doing the work, he doesn't even pay them. He uses them and tosses them. His whole approach, it's all about him. And we see this. His 11-year reign was oriented to his personal enrichment to the public's expense. Again, I'm on the verge of getting political this morning. But there are people who find that the, the perks of office can be very lucrative. And they can, they can soak up a lot of wealth. And they can have 65 vacations in eight years in an amazing, amazing capacity. All right? oriented to personal enrichment to the public expense, despite the tribute he was forced to pay, first to Egypt, then to Babylon. When you read the history, I mean, he's paying tribute, 100 talents of silver. He's got to pay all this blood money to the Egyptians. And then he's got to pay all that blood money to the Babylonians. Because Nebuchadnezzar comes along, and he wants to do the same thing that Pharaoh Necho did. He wants to effect a change of government. He says, all right, you're done being king. You're out of here. I'm going to put my own puppet king there. And uh, Je- uh, Jehoiakim was such a snake, he was able to keep his job. <laughs> he was able to change allegiances. And he was able to pay Babylon like he'd paid Egypt. While at the same time getting rich himself. You can read more on this if you want. Starting in Second Kings twenty-three thirty-four, and going all the way down through chapter 24 and verse 5. But we see the references here. He says, the Lord gets a little sarcastic in verse 15. This is, this is hilarious. You know, cause I, I speak sarcasm. I speak fluent sarcasm. And, 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 and when the Lord gets sarcastic here in verse 15, it's interesting. He says, do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? <laughs> you know, is it a cedar building contest? Is that what makes you king? He probably used more cedar than any king since Solomon, really. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. Do you remember Josiah? you remember the kind of king your dad was? He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is, is uh, not that what it means to, to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are intent only upon your own dishonest gain. Everything is about how do I get rich off of this? How does this, how does this fill my pocket? And on shedding innocent blood, well... You know, you've got to break some eggs if you're going to make an omelet. 
You know, yeah, somebody gets hurt, but I'm going to make my money. And on practicing oppression and extortion. See, almost the, the antithesis of why God gives human government. It's not what the world would do with a tyrant. It's what God does when he puts a man on the throne that's his steward, that's his agent, that's his representative to administer justice. Therefore, thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they will not lament for him. You know, when, when you have a funeral and the only people that show up are the people that are throwing the party, that are celebrating, that are passing out uh, celebratory gifts and, and so forth, there is no lamentation for him. No one says, alas, my brother or alas, sister. They will not lament for him. Alas, for the master or alas, for his splendor. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. In fact, the details of his death are quite interesting. And different writers describe it in different ways. In Second Chronicles, actually, we learn that he is enchained for captivity. Second Chronicles 36, verses 5 through 8. As if Nebuchadnezzar intends to take him off into captivity. He's put in chains, but he's not actually taken to Babylon. Instead, he's dragged out like a donkey and thrown over the walls. Um, this is recorded not only in our chapter today, we'll come back to it again in chapter 36. comes back in Jeremiah 36.30 in a reference there. Jeremiah 36.30. This, by the way, if you've never studied this, it's an interesting puzzle. Yeah, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him and his descendants and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the calamity that I have declared to them, but they did not listen. All right, so it's a second record now of just being thrown to the field, of not being legitimately buried. All right, and being cast off and rejected. Um, then you read in Second Kings 24 and verse 6, and you've got kind of the standard formula that he went to rest with his fathers and, and Jehoiakim, his son, became king in his place. Um, whether we can read a, a burial into that or not, I don't think you can. I think it's just an eating that ex- expression there in Second Kings chapter 24. But some people look at it and they find a puzzle or they find a contradiction or they say, aha, look at that. Second Kings says that he was uh, said that he was buried. No, it doesn't. It says he rested with his fathers. Uh, Jeremiah says he was thrown out like a donkey. Uh, Second Chronicles said he was enchained and taken to Babylon. No, it doesn't. It says he was enchained, but it, uh, in order to go to Babylon. But it never says he traveled to Babylon in that chapter. So we reconcile these passages. We put them together in a harmony. It's similar to, I think, probably the more famous example is how did Judas Iscariot die? You know, did he hang himself? Did his guts fall out? Uh, because we have divergent accounts in two different places for the demise of Judas Iscariot. Even three, if you consider the book of Acts, that says he departed and went to his own place. All right, so we have three descriptions of, of the demise of Judas Iscariot. And uh, a Bible skeptic will get upset and say, well, it contradicts and you can't trust the Bible and blah, blah, blah. No, we put them all together, we harmonize them, and we reconcile them, and we're fine. In particular, we do the same thing here with, with uh, Jehoiakim. 
He was put in chains to carry to captivity, but he was never carried to captivity. They killed him there on the spot, and they dragged him out like a donkey. They threw him over the wall. And then whether they subsequently felt bad and put him in a tomb or not, um, I leave that as an open question pertaining to these things. All right. So there's Jehoiakim. Not a happy message. Do you understand why Jeremiah was not the most popular speaker of his generation? You know, everything he said was upsetting to the particular king that was on the throne at the time. Now we get to Kaniah. I call him Captive Kaniah. Captive Kaniah is cursed and he is considered childless considered childless write this man down childless he's going to actually have seven children but he's going to be counted as childless he's going to be considered to be childless because no son of his will ever be on the throne and that's a promise from the lord and this becomes uh, a detail that if you're uh, serious about your eschatology this becomes a fascinating study in how god stays faithful to all of his promises And so verses 24 through 30 now, as we deal with captive Kaniah. Kaniah, also known as Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiachin, also known as, uh, they had had a lot of different names, depending on who was spelling it and how short they were going to get with it. Uh, But verse 24, as I live, declares the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord. You understand what we're dealing with? How powerful this is? This is the language of a vow. This is serious, okay? As I live. He's the God who cannot die, but he, he takes a vow based upon his own life, right? You know, we don't use this kind of language anymore. We don't say, I mean, it's a, it's a children's ditty on a playground. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Who does that, okay? But these, these, these languages, these expressions are the... the um, exhortations of a vow. So if I'm, if I'm swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, what does that mean? I realize in our culture it's meaningless, but what did it used to mean? So help me God, meaning God is free to strike me dead if I am lying. All right? As I live. So I'm, I'm staking the validity of this promise on my very life. And, right, if I'm lying, I'm dying. If uh, See, we just use them as jokes. They're just, they're just jokes. They're just children ditties. But they were grounded in the ancient world. They were grounded on a very serious belief that the gods will hold us to our vows. And in particular, the God of truth holds Israel to their vows. And the God who cannot lie takes a vow and he stakes it on his own life. The God who cannot die stakes it on his own life. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. And we know what a signet ring is. We know that it's the mark of his authority. It's his checkbook. It's, his, it's, it's the, the means by which he puts his seal on every law he passes, on every command, on every business dealing, on every covenant, on every treaty. If you hold the signet ring of the king, you can act in the king's name. Pharaoh gave Joseph his signet ring. Joseph was acting as Pharaoh. 
All right? The king of Israel is considered as a regent to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And yet here he is now taking his ring off, which I can't do. Taking <clears throat> hurt. his ring off, saying, I am done with my covenant king. Now that's kind of a problem, isn't it? Because the Lord made an eternal promise with David. David would not lack a son on the throne. And now here's Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, and same guy, Kaniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin. These guys had too many names. Um, And he's taking off the signet ring. And he's saying, you will never have a son on the throne. And so what we end up with, it appears at the moment anyway, is tension in two prophecies that both can't get fulfilled. Because David has to have a son on the throne forever, and Jeconiah can never have a son on the throne. So is God going to make one promise good and, and, and bail on the other promise? Or he's a God of truth. He has to be true on both promises. All right. Yet I would pull you off, and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they... And this this happens. Nebuchadnezzar takes him and his mother off into captivity. That as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Kaniah, is he a despised, shattered jar? Remember a couple weeks ago, Jeremiah had smashed a jar. Is that what Kaniah is? Is he a despised, shattered jar? Is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. Okay? Consider him childless. Consider him childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And that takes us to the end of the chapter. And this is huge. This is, you know, we, we, we might get scared and say, wow, so much for the Davidic covenant. I guess it's over. All right. Uh, you know, wait a minute, what's this saying? Well, thankfully, we don't have to worry about it. Um, We've already seen in chapter 13, by the way, the end of Jehoiachin's life is spent in blessing. He does go into captivity, but at the end, he actually is released. He never gets to return to Jerusalem, but he gets a, a portion from the king's table. And you can read about this. We talked about it back in Jeremiah 13. A uh, narrative of this comes up in 2 Kings 25, verses 27 through 30, or at the end of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 52. Let's look at this one. It's a, kind of a preview for where we'll be in uh, 30 weeks. Jeremiah 52, verses 31 through 34. It came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th of the month. Here's a Christmas present for you. All right. On the 25th of the day of the 12th month, um, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. 
And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. Talk about dying grace at the end of Jehoiachin's life, see. And uh, Daniel's not specifically mentioned there, but you have to believe that Daniel had influence in Nebuchadnezzar's ministry and in evil Merodach's kingdom and, uh, and so forth here in uh, Babylon. So he's taken away, yet there's a measure of grace at the end of his life. He's never, he never gets to sit on that Davidic throne ever again, and his son will never sit on that Davidic throne. The signet ring removal has a significant replacement in the days of Zerubbabel. And this is where I'm giving you in 10 minutes, which should probably take a dozen weeks or more to spell it out. You've got to do an exhaustive study through Habakkuk, I'm sorry, through Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. Because the signet ring removal comes back in the days of Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jehoiachin, all right? Because it's Jehoiachin, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. In Haggai chapter 2, let's take a look at this. In the days of Zerubbabel, Haggai. You say, what in the world's a Haggai? Well, one of the minor prophets... Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And uh, Haggai chapter 2. This is after the captivity. They're coming back. They've been in Babylon 70 years. The Persians let them come back. And you'll note there's a, a signet ring message here. Haggai 2.20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. Okay, not just an earthquake, a heavenquake. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations or the Gentiles. I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. There is a powerful prophecy here in Haggai that correlates with the message in in, uh, Jeremiah relating to that signet ring, related to how Yahweh relates to his people. And he's taken that ring off in 586 B.C. He's going to put that ring back on, but not till the second advent, not till the millennium. All right? He will put that ring on in the millennium. He will put that ring on again in the, in the consequence of shaking the heavens and the earth, which is tribulation, all right? In the, in, the, in the eschatological promises of what's coming up for Israel's future, all right? This becomes huge for us when we want to understand the, the, the course of human history, the course of, of, of what happens when that throne is vacated and when it's reseated in the person of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, Zerubbabel was selected to be a governor. 
When the Persians said, yeah, go back, rebuild Jerusalem, go back and, and populate it, and Zerubbabel leads them back. There were, there were waves of, re, of returning under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, under Nehemiah. I call them the Zen returnings because it was Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. And they bring them back in three waves from Babylon. And Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jehoiachin, he never takes his seat on the throne of, of David. He knows he's not entitled to the throne of David. He's the heir. If he was a, an arrogant man, he would. But he rules as a faithful governor to, to Cyrus, a faithful governor to the Persians, just as Daniel had been faithful. It's an amazing story. Zerubbabel is one of the, 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 to me, one of the more extraordinary characters in the whole Bible is Zerubbabel, who was the grandson of the king, who was in the line of Christ, who, you, if he was arrogant, he would just claim that throne, but he doesn't. The prophet Haggai says that it's eschatological before that, that uh, signet ring can be put back on his hand. It's an amazing thing. All right, so how do we solve the problem? How can a son of David sit on the throne forever, but, a, uh, but no son of Jehoiakim can sit on the throne ever? How do, how do we make both prophecies come true? Well, you uh, arrange for a virgin birth of Jesus Christ. All right? You arrange for a virgin birth of Jesus Christ, and then you can solve both prophecies at once. And you can have a son of David eternally on the throne, but no physical son of Jehoiachin on the throne because of the virgin birth. Jesus is not a physical son of Jehoiachin. And yet the legal lineage is intact. The legal lineage from um, Jeconiah down through Zerubbabel, down through Jesus, is intact. It's a beautiful study. Uh, is killing me. I'm giving this to you all in 10 minutes. <laughs> all right. But Jesus has two genealogies. If you ever study them out, the one in Matthew is his legal line. It's the legal Davidic lineage of Christ. And by the way, it descends from David to Solomon to all those kings of Judah down through Jeconiah. It excludes, by the way, uh, Zedekiah. Zedekiah was an uncle and he was not a son of Jehoiachin and he's not in the line of Christ. The, the, uh, we talk about how the Davidic throne was vacated when Zedekiah... No, the Davidic throne was vacated when the signet ring was taken off when Jehoiachin was taken into captivity. That's extraordinary. Legal lineage of, of, is, is in Matthew chapter 1. The physical Davidic lineage of Christ comes in Luke chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, interestingly enough, he, because Mary, his, his mother, was also Davidic, but not of the legal line, not of the royal line, not through uh, Solomon, but through Nathan, through David's son Nathan, another Bathsheba son, but not Solomon the king, Nathan the gift. All right? And it's extraordinary how his biological humanity comes through Nathan the gift, not through Solomon the king. And uh, again, we're reminded of those if statements that were given to Solomon. And we're reminded that it's not the Solomon dynasty, it's the Davidic dynasty. And, and the, the physical humanity of Christ doesn't come through Solomon. The physical humanity of Christ comes through Nathan, Solomon's little brother. More puzzles, if you really want to get into it, we can uh, approach this Wednesday night or on a question and answer basis or what have you. The Matthew line and the, and the Luke line have two points of commonality. Well, three if you count David at the top, right? But from David to Jesus, you got the legal line through Solomon. 
You got the physical line through Nathan. They both end up at Jesus, but also there's a point of, of intersection in the middle, and that point of intersection is Zerubbabel. It is one of the most marvelous glories you'll ever puzzle over, is how it can come together through Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. Both genealogical lines intersected Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jesus, the son of Mary. And we find the, the, the humility of Zerubbabel is such that he becomes one of the great types of Christ in the Old Testament. Because remember, Zerubbabel had a promise of a signet ring, and it was an eschatological promise, and he accepted it. Jesus has a throne, but he's waiting for a second advent to sit on that throne as well. In his first advent, he goes to the cross. And so it's such a parallel between Zerubbabel and Jesus, it's really... It's an exciting uh, study on its own. Well, like I say, it's Communion Sunday and it goes quickly. We need to uh, pray and, and uh, proceed to the Lord's table. But just understand, everything that went into the birth of, of Jesus Christ and how, why it's so critical, and when we ignore chronicles and we ignore the genealogies and we, we just fall asleep during all the begats, that we may be missing some of the most important treasures imaginable. Because it's important to the Lord. It's crucial for the fulfillment of prophecy. If he's not virgin born, then he's not sinless. He's in Adam and he needs a savior too. But he's born of a virgin and he's not in Adam. And he does not receive the Adamic sin nature. And so he can, the word can become flesh and walk among us and he can go to the cross to purchase our eternal life. That's important. (laughs) Shall we pray? Father, I do thank you for your truth. And I realize, Father, this hour is is, uh, really an overview. We're not plunging into the exegesis. We're not plunging into the detail we could. There's other hours in the week where we do more in-depth studies. But Father, uh, I do pray that in in the big picture view you're giving us here, that we would learn and we would grow and we would be challenged father to learn even more that father uh, that you might bring us someday into an even deeper study of of jeconiah and, and zerubbabel and jesus and how these promises unfold i thank you father for your faithfulness to uh, to take every passage of scripture and harmonize it that uh, there is not one verse that has uh, that has that you ever fall short in your word is truth, Father, and, and it is such a, a blessing for us to accept it as such, to embrace it as such, and to, uh, to just celebrate how glorious and awesome you are. So, Father, make these truths very real to each one of us. Open the eyes of our understanding. Show us, Father, humble us to realize that we're going to spend the rest of our days on this earth learning more and more, and then we're going to spend all eternity in the new heavens and new earth learning more and more and more. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen.